Now that true crime has become an obsessively popular genre, it is no surprise that when people find out we are forensic scientists, we are met with an outpouring of questions. Did you work that recent homicide? Yo, what does decom smell like? You must love your job, huh? It's through questions like these that we have come to realize that you want more. I'm Bodine. And I'm Darby, and we are here to serve up the coffee talk version of everything you need to know about the science, laws, and people behind the yellow tape. Welcome to the Washoe County Sheriff's Office. Coffee with the Criminalist. Hello, everyone. Hi, guys. Welcome to another episode of Coffee with a Criminalist, and more specifically, welcome to... Part three of our CODIS series, our final CODIS episode. Woohoo! And something really exciting, you guys, we wanted to fill you in and let you know that we have hit our 5,000 downloads... Yeah, so thank you guys for listening and continuing to listen. Yeah, and you guys seem to really be liking our um, CODA series here for you guys. We hit that 5,000 downloads, and we are very quickly approaching our 6,000, actually. usually takes us a while to get that next 1,000, but these last three, you guys have really been listening and sharing, and so thank you guys. And on this episode, we are being fueled by the Reno Coffee Company. They are down on Wells. I had the Hemp and Honey, um, which was very good. And all of their coffee is pour-over coffee. Mm-hmm. And they also do uh, some loose-leaf teas and chai. And I actually tried their mate tea with oat milk and honey. And oh my gosh, it was so delicious. And their atmosphere is really cool inside. It's mm-hmm. like trendy and fun. And um, I really enjoyed visiting them and hanging out for a while. There's a great vibe there for sure. Mm-hmm. So if you guys have not tried them out, stop by, get a drink, mention that uh, you heard of them through us. Yeah. So you guys, um, with this being our third and final episode for our CODA series, um, this is a big one. So seriously, grab your cup of coffee, settle in. We have so many cases and topics to cover today. Um, We just want to let you guys know that we aren't going to actually be getting into super specific details about each case. Um, We're really focusing actually on the laws because this series of cases and how they kind of unfolded together is just so impactful for... um, some reinterpretation of law in our state. Yeah, this is a big one, so let's get started. Uh, Michelle Mitchell was a 19-year-old nursing student at UNR, and on February 24th, 1976, she was driving up near campus when her car broke down. She managed to get her car into a parking lot near campus and use the phone booth on campus to call her mom for a ride, but when her mother showed up approximately 20 minutes later, Michelle was nowhere to be found. So her mother, her father, and the police searched the area but could not find Michelle. And I know this case was from 1976, but I love reading these older articles and, like, seeing things. And um, if you guys are familiar with campus, like, the south side, like, Fleischman Ag, there used to be a little phone booth there. I don't know if it's still there, but I remember seeing it um, when I was in college. I don't know if you remember seeing it or not. I don't. Um, But I think that was it. And I was like, oh my gosh, I think that may have been the phone booth. Um, So later that evening, an elderly couple was returning home to their residence on 9th Street, and they actually found Michelle's body in their garage. And it was determined that Michelle had been stabbed numerous times, and from the time that Michelle actually phoned her mother for help to the time that her body was discovered, it was only approximately three hours. And despite this, like, really close, short time frame, there weren't any strong leads that were developed, and eventually this case ended up going cold. Three years later, in March of 1979, a woman by the name of Kathy Woods became a suspect in Michelle's murder. Kathy had lived in Reno at the time of the murder. Um, She was working as a bartender, but moved to Louisiana about a year after Michelle's murder. 
and while at the Louisiana State University Medical Center, she had claimed to have killed Michelle. With this confession, she was convicted of murder in 1980 for the first time, and the Nevada Supreme Court overturned her conviction based on testimony that wasn't allowed by the court at her first trial. Her case went to court again, and she was convicted in 1985 for the second time and sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. With this, the case was solved and put to rest, but it wasn't so with the string of homicides from California that had occurred around the same time that Michelle had been murdered. Now coined what's called the Gypsy Hill Killings, a string of five homicides really rocked the San Mateo County um, in 1976. At the time, the killer was being referred to as the San Mateo Slasher. The string of homicides spanned from January 7th, 1976 to April 1st, 1976. And the victims in this string of killings were 18-year-old Veronica Cassio, 14-year-old Tanya Blackwell, 17-year-old Paula Baxter, 26-year-old Carol Booth, and 19-year-old Denise Lampy. All of these victims had been stabbed numerous times, and several of them had been or appeared to have been sexually assaulted. And this was actually really huge when we were going through and kind of looking up um, some articles on this. There, the media at the time, I mean, this was really well known. Um, it was really kind of terrorizing uh, the San Mateo County at that time. And um, what was always very interesting to investigators uh, when they were looking at this case and also the media was that as quickly as these cases began, they also stopped. Like it literally spanned from January 7th to April 1st. So it's like a span of like four months. Um, and then even quicker, they seriously just went cold. With the advent of DNA testing, these cases were re-examined, and two of the cases were definitively linked through DNA analysis. The same unknown male DNA profile was developed in two of those cases, um, and each of those profiles from the different cases were entered into the CODIS database, and once again, there was no hit, and so the cases went cold. And these cases may have stayed cold if it hadn't been for a turn of events in the Reno homicide of Michelle Mitchell that occurred 33 years after Kathy Woods had been found guilty of her murder. In 2013, Michelle Mitchell's case was actually reopened with the help of the Rocky Mountain Innocence Project, and at the time of her murder, DNA analysis wasn't even around yet. But with these innocence projects, they reevaluate these older cases to see if there's any evidence that might be able to be used for DNA testing, and they will go about getting that um, testing completed. Our lab was actually contacted to do the testing um, in this case, and we analyzed several items. One in particular proved to be very important in the Michelle Mitchell case, as well as linking it to the Gypsy Hill killings, and that was a um, cigarette butt. So DNA analysis was performed on the cigarette butt that was found at the scene of Michelle Mitchell's murder, and a male DNA profile was developed and put into CODIS. This profile hit to two profiles in CODIS from California, and this hit officially linked Michelle's murder to the 1976 Gypsy Hill killings. And as exciting as this was, and I can tell you guys, um, I was working here at the time, so when this happened, it was really exciting down here in the lab for us. Um, it was also very perplexing at the same time because um, 
you know, even with this link, there wasn't actually a lead as to who the killer was because both Michelle's case and the Gypsy Hill killings cases were completely unsolved um, and had been cold for quite a while. And so the one thing, though, that became very clear uh, to our agency and other uh, players involved was that Kathy Woods should not have been sitting in prison. And so Kathy was released from prison on bond on September 11th, 2014, and the prosecution formally dismissed the charges against her on March 6, 2015. Kathy Woods uh, was the longest ever wrongfully incarcerated woman in United States history. These cases wouldn't get a lead, though, until July 2014, when a man by the name of Rodney Halbauer became a suspect. Halbauer had been a California resident during the years of 1975 and 1976. He had a lengthy rap sheet that included everything from larceny and burglary to a 1975 sexual assault of a Reno woman. He had been sentenced to two concurrent terms of life and had been serving those terms since May 7, 1976, in the Nevada prison system. And during his incarceration, Halbauer escaped and in 1986 made his way up to Oregon, where he stabbed a woman in a parking lot. He was apprehended and arrested. In this case, he was sentenced to attempted murder, first-degree robbery, and first-degree assault. But before he could serve his time in Oregon for that case, he had to be extradited back to Nevada to finish out his sentence for the sexual assault case from 1975. In 2014, he was paroled from the Nevada system, but then remember, he had that pending case from Oregon, so he had to be sent to Oregon to begin serving his uh, life sentence there, and his DNA sample was collected as a convicted offender at that time and was entered into the CODIS database. Uh, that entry then hit to the profiles from the Gypsy Hill killings and the evidence profile from the Michelle Mitchell case. With this information, for the first time in 38 years, investigators had a hit to an individual and potential suspect in the Gypsy Hill killings. Additionally, there was now a very strong lead in the Michelle Mitchell case. Rodney was extradited from Oregon to California, where he was convicted of the murders of 17-year-old Paula Baxter and 18-year-old Veronica Cassio in the Gypsy Hill killings. Um, and to kind of give you a little bit of background about this one, you guys can look it up, but these were the two cases out of the five that have the strongest DNA evidence. And so those were the two cases that were taken to court against um, Rodney Halbauer. He was sentenced to two consecutive life sentences in these cases. Um, before he can actually serve his time for those, he has been extradited to Oregon to complete his time in Oregon for the Oregon um, case against him. And if you're scratching your head a little bit listening to this, you're not alone. Some of us here in the lab did the same thing as well. How could someone who had been in our prison system not to hit to these crimes sooner? And how did all these cases fit together? To put this timeline into perspective for you, let's review the cases. Halbauer was convicted for the November 1975 sexual assault of a Reno woman. He'd been arrested for that case in 1975, but was released on bail while awaiting his trial date set for March of 1976. In January of 1976, both Veronica and Tanya were murdered. In February, Paula and Michelle were murdered. In April, Denise was murdered. In May 1976, Halbauer was booked into a Nevada detention facility to serve his sentence for that sexual assault. And in 1976, there was no DNA testing and there was no CODIS. Additionally, there was no law that required collecting of DNA from convicted felons or arrestees. 
so Rodney sat in a Nevada facility without ever being in the CODIS system. He escaped prison in 1986 and was arrested and convicted for the Oregon case. Once again, no CODIS and no collection laws. He then again sat in the facility until his extradition to Oregon in 2014, and then, finally, his sample was collected. Because he had been convicted before the DNA laws, Rodney and many others like him were not in the CODIS system. Let's once again hear from our state CODIS administrator, Steve Gresko, about this topic and how these cases, and more specifically how they unfolded together, helped allow for retroactive collection of those serving times for crime before the laws existed for DNA collection. Can you tell us what retroactive collection is and why you were so passionate about getting this change in our state? So retroactive collection has to deal with the way that our convicted offender law was implemented and interpreted. Um, our state actually passed their offender law in the late 80s before we had almost 10 full years before we had a functioning DNA lab. So mm -hmm. very forward thinking in passing good laws, but uh, unfortunately we didn't have a law yet and we didn't have CODIS yet. So we passed a law in the 80s that collected from primarily sex offenders, sex crimes, and that was our very first law. Um, when the lab finally got up and running and started actually looking at putting in policies to start um, putting these things into CODIS, the, the lab folks at that time requested an opinion from the Attorney General to know whether this law should be applied prospectively or retroactively. And the Attorney General at that time said that unless the law specifically stated that it should be applied retroactively, that we should only apply the collection law prospectively. And so that's what we did, which means that anybody who committed a crime that was not specifically stated in 1989 didn't have to give us a sample. It was only somebody who committed a sex crime after that date in 1989 that their offense would qualify for collection. And with each legislative session, uh, I mean, every legislative session after that, the legislature would incrementally expand the scope so they would include homicide. Um, then they would, say, well, let's collect from all violent felons. And it took them a long time to finally get around to collecting all felons. So we didn't start collecting every felony conviction in the state of Nevada until 2007. And it's a problem because you have people who are in prison for very violent crimes that uh, we have no legal right to go and collect a DNA sample from. So why is that problematic? there were things that really bugged me about applying that law re uh, prospectively instead of retroactively. We would get DNA samples would be collected by prison people as these men would get released from prison. So imagine somebody gets convicted of murder. They do 25 to 30 years sentence in prison and then they get either paroled or they serve all of the time that they were convicted for and they're released. 
Well, these prison officials would check the list that we had at the time and say, oh, well, this person's a murderer and they didn't give us a DNA sample, so we're going to collect them before we release them. We would get those samples, and here I have a sample from a convicted murderer. Uh, who knows what else he's done? We have all these cold cases that have no hits in CODIS, and I have to take that sample and shred it and throw it in the garbage. And we had hundreds of samples like that from um, convicted felons for... Uh, robbery, murder, rape, that we just Couldn't shredded guess. them and threw them in the trash. And it really bugged me. And so I tried through sending letters to subsequent attorney generals um, to ask for a re-review of that. And that just largely fell on deaf ears. Mm-hmm. And then uh, you actually did gain traction, though, with this project, and it was largely in part due to the Michelle Mitchell case, correct? That's right. And how did you go about getting retroactive collection on board with our state? So it would be helpful to describe the details around that Michelle Mitchell case because it created a lot of uh, political will to, mm-hmm. to actually take a look at it. Um, young woman murdered here in Nevada. Her body was found in a garage not far from the University of Nevada, Reno. Mm -hmm. And uh, a woman, several years after the crime, confessed to that and was ultimately convicted of it. Um, I think that as soon as she was arrested, she recanted her confession. But uh, be that as it may, I won't really argue the merits of Mm-hmm. of that case and conviction but it suffice to say that she was convicted for that crime and she spent three decades in a Nevada prison for that murder. Innocence Project got involved on her behalf and it was found that there was a I should say that this crime occurred in the 60s so this is well before the, anybody had any thoughts about DNA testing. Um, But it was discovered in a review of the evidence by the Innocence Project that there was a cigarette butt found underneath Michelle Mitchell's body at the crime scene. And the homeowners where her body was found uh, didn't smoke. So very good piece of evidence that we would love to have in any crime today. So we processed that cigarette butt and it hit to a series of rape murders uh, out of the Bay Area. And that serial killer rapist had a nickname, is the Gypsy Hill Killer. Um, but all of the California cases were still unsolved, and our case was still unsolved. Mm-hmm. So it became apparent at that moment that we probably had the wrong person in prison for Michelle Mitchell's murder, and uh, the the wheels started to turn to to get that innocent lady released. Um, at the same time, we have these series of rape homicides that are unsolved. Again, we have these profiles in CODIS, but they aren't hitting to an offender. So who is this guy? Um, then out of the blue, about a year after we got that initial hit to those cases in California, we get a hit to an offender profile out of Oregon. and. That was the Rodney Halbauer mm-hmm. sample. And when we looked up who Rodney Halbauer was, lo and behold, the reason that he had never been put into CODIS is that he had done over 30 years of time that he was serving for a very brutal rape here in the Reno area. 
he was one of our old prison inmates who were not allowed to collect. And it really made me mad that here's this guy's been sitting in a Nevada prison for 30 years and we don't have the ability to go in and collect his DNA sample and solve potential really heinous crimes, right? And give when, leads in a timely manner, right? Because you guys sat with that hit for, like you said, like a year, and it just went cold again. There was really nothing there. Right. And it just did, it seemed like a, a serious injustice to me that somebody could get arrested for felony driving under the influence, and they have to give us a DNA sample. But we have murderers and rapists sitting in our prison doing decades of time, and we we can't go and touch their, their DNA samples. Mm-hmm. So... I wrote another letter to, well, I wrote up a letter requesting a re-review by the Attorney General of the arrestee law to see if we could apply it, or the convicted offender law to see if we could apply it retroactively. And uh, we were fortunate that on the heels of the discovery of Rodney Halbauer Mm -hmm. incident in relation to the Michelle Mitchell case, um, our AG at the time, Adam Laxalt, decided to give it another look. And he said that he read the minutes of the legislative session in regards to our offender law and that the unpublished review of that said that from reading that, that the legislative intent was that it be applied retroactively and he allowed that to happen. So we were allowed to apply our law retroactively um, for people who were currently incarcerated. And when did that change or reinterpretation of that law take effect? Uh, it took effect as soon as he issued the opinion. I mm-hmm. want to say that happened in 2017, 2017 or 2018. Uh, I don't recall the exact time, but it took, took some time to get the prisons um, on board. They were willing, but they're like, I don't know how to, we don't know how to go about mm-hmm. getting this process in place. So that kicked off a a lengthy process of us figuring out who we already had and who they still had in prison that still owed us a sample. Mm -hmm. And at that point, how many, about how many uncollected individuals were there? Once we completely vetted the lists, we found that there were about 1,200 people that owed us a sample. They, They had committed a felony and we did not have their DNA profile in CODIS. And you already kind of referenced it a little bit, but it sounded like this was quite a large undertaking. So how did you coordinate this effort? Were you the person that that did that? And how did they get these people collected? Uh, I wasn't really the point person on the collections of that. The Department of Corrections really picked up the ball and and, and ran with that. Um, I I was a resource for them Mm -hmm. in uh, just letting them know who they still needed to collect. But uh, it was the good people in the Nevada Department of Corrections who put in all of the protocols and and the procedures to get those people out of their cells and and swabbed. And is this project now completed? It is. It's been completed for probably a year now. So because this is actually an interpretation of the law versus a change of the law, could this be interpreted differently by, let's say, like our next AG? And is that a potential issue for these samples that were collected? So it is a potential issue. Again, we are, we're talking about 
a policy that we implemented based off of one attorney general's opinion, and now we are we have a, a policy that we are following based off of a different attorney general's opinion. So if our current attorney general decided that uh, he did not like this interpretation, we would have to stop. Uh, we'd have to have a conversation about what it meant for the samples that we'd already collected. But I think this is this is my next thing that I would really like to see changed in a legislative session. I would like to see the offender law applied retroactively, uh, not just for persons incarcerated, but also for persons who are still under supervision by parole and probation. I think that if you have a qualifying felony conviction, it doesn't matter when you did that crime. You owe it today. You did it. 20 years ago, I think you still owe us a sample. Um, I would really like to see the Nevada legislature change that law and make our convicted offender law retroactive for anybody in prison or currently being supervised by parole and probation. Sounds like you got some more work on your hands. Yes. <laughs> and has this project led to any major cases getting investigative leads? Yeah, uh, a huge case out of Colorado. We had one of our retroactive collections is actually a funny story. I, when I come in every morning to work, I first thing I do is open up CODIS and look at my match manager to see if we have any new matches. And I saw two hits to a convicted offender, one of our convicted offenders to two um, forensic profiles out of Colorado. And that's not unusual. I see mm -hmm. lots of hits all the time. But then within minutes of me seeing them, my phone starts ringing. And it's pretty unusual for me to get a phone call that early in the morning. So I pick it up, and uh, it's a very excited CODIS administrator, <laughs> local CODIS administrator from uh, the Denver area. And they said, "Do you ha this is a very serious hit for us. And uh, we would really, really appreciate you lighting a fire under turning this around. So turning that around means we have a process for confirming our offender samples before we release the name of the offender to mm -hmm. the other, the crime lab. And so we lit a fire under that <laughs> and turned it around. And it turns out it was a hit to a serial murder really bad one they actually had a nickname for that one too he was called the denver hammer slayer mm -hmm. a guy had raped and murdered two different families several members of two different families in the colorado area back in the 80s and did that, that crime spree over a two-week period and then just disappeared off the face mm -hmm. of the earth and uh, what they didn't know and we didn't know until we put him into codis was that he had left the Colorado area and actually attacked somebody in Arizona and actually got arrested for the attack that he did in Arizona. But while he was being transferred, they pulled the police transport, pulled into a gas station for to fuel up and let people use the restroom. And uh, this guy's last name is Ewing. He escaped and was able to get to the Las Vegas area where he immediately attacked an elderly couple, uh, tried to bludgeon them to death with a, an axe handle, and he was caught by police and convicted for that crime and had, again, this was in the early 80s mm -hmm. that he did all this, 
he sat in, sitting in Nevada prison, and he was actually up for parole within, I think within eight months, wow. he was coming up for a parole hearing to potentially get released back into the public when we collected him, put him in, and found out that he's actually wanted for these really bad rape and murders in, in Denver. So, yeah, that was a big one. So very successful, this yeah. endeavor of retroactive collection. Yeah, we had a few other hits as well. Not as sensational or well-publicized, but uh, there were, at last count, I think we solved eight wow. cold cases with, with that effort. It's well worth the effort. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, you know, we've talked about it a few times. You are a very, very busy man when it comes to the laws in the state of Nevada as it pertains to CODIS. Um, you've already talked about, you know, getting some of those laws permanent for retroactive collection um, and some foresight and where you want that to go. But what else is on your agenda for CODIS in the state of Nevada? Well, there's a process called familial searching is the next big thing on my plate. Uh, People are probably familiar with genealogy, forensic genealogy. Yeah. Uh, that's how they caught the uh, Golden State Killer. Uh, we actually had some success with forensic genealogy in our own agency with the Sheep Flat Jane Doe yeah. case, Mary Silvani. Um, but there is another technique that was actually around before genetic genealogy called familial searching. And what is familial searching? So familial searching is a deliberate search of the co the offender population in CODIS. So we're going to take all of our offenders in the state of Nevada and we're going to intentionally search them looking not for a direct match but for possible kinship matches. So, so like family members, kinship. Correct. Okay. So specifically, we're looking for parent-child relationships or sibling relationships. Okay. That's about, that's not about, that's all that you can really do with the, um, the genetic information that we put into CODIS. Mm -hmm. We don't really have the ability to go any further out than a si potential sibling relationship or parent-child relationship. So it's not as powerful as uh, the full SNP panel that they would look at in forensic genealogy. But the STR panels that we use in forensic genetics um, are sufficient enough to be able to go in and find a parent-child or a sibling relationship. And what are you having to do to get this process on board for our state? So it's going to require me to validate it. I at the very beginning stages of doing this. So the nuts and bolts of how that's done are essentially with you use the missing persons capabilities of CODIS. And so you can build a pedigree tree. You can put a forensic profile in to that pedigree tree as the target. So instead of having a missing person as the target, you're going to have your forensic unknown as your target. And then you're going to look for potential relationships. And if there's a parent, a potential parent in the database or a potential sibling in the database, the CODIS software will find them and give you a list of potential siblings or parents. Wow. And what is your approximate time frame to get this on board? I'd like to have it done by the end of the year. It's going to wow, be okay. a pretty extensive validation project. And I'll be honest, I don't know exactly how to do it yet. So <laughs> okay. I'm going to have to Always go learning. <laughs> find some smart people within our biology unit to help me with this. We and, got a uh, few of those. We can yes. help you out. <laughs> Lots of smart ladies in our, in our biology section. <laughs> 
Um, and now kind of moving away from CODIS and all that good stuff, who are you outside of the lab, Steve? Who am I outside of the lab? Yes. Mm-hmm. I'm Steve Gresco outside of the lab. <laughs> we wanted uh, our listeners to get to know us as more uh, kind of a little bit on a personal level, if you're comfortable sharing some of that with sure. our listeners. Sure. I'm a father of three sons. Uh, I have a f- my oldest is in his early 20s. He works in the trades. I have uh, another son who is currently in boot camp for the Marine Corps in San Diego, doing well there. And I have a sophomore in high school. Uh, I also like to hunt and camp and hike and coach. I coach wrestling. I have done that for with my boys when they were little kids and coached other little kids in the in the area and also participate in coaching at the high school. So those are my passions, wrestling, hunting, and my family. Right on. All right, well, you've made it to the part of our interview that we call the lightning round. Uh, these are a few questions that every one of our interviewees gets. Uh, they are the same, except for one. We got one thought-provoking question for you. So your first question is, um, do you ever see or worry about, or maybe you don't worry about, a future in which... Um, everyone is in some sort of database with their DNA, and would that be okay with you? Well, you'd have to define database. Are we talking about a database like CODIS? Are we talking about... Mm, I would say, like, have you seen the movie Gattaca? Yeah. Where everyone is just in there and <laughs> everything is known about you. Uh, what would be your thoughts on that? Would that be like a CODIS administrator's utopia? No. No? <laughs> <laughs> so you have to recognize that CODIS is very different from, like, Gattaca. Mm-hmm. There's no, we don't know anything about you from the SDR panels that we put into CODIS. They're only useful for being able to identify somebody. Um, I would be very in favor of having 100% of the American population in CODIS. I, uh, there's no harm there. Mm-hmm. It's okay for us to be able to search CODIS with something from a crime scene and say, oh, yes, it's Mr. Joe Smith. Um, it doesn't mean that you did it. Right. It just means that we found your DNA at a crime scene. You might have a perfectly reasonable explanation for why your DNA is at that crime scene. Um, no harm can come from us being able to identify whose DNA is at, at a particular crime scene, provided you have a good explanation. Right. <laughs> um, I think it's quite a different thing to have a database with everybody in it and medically relevant information. I think right. that that's problematic, and mm-hmm. I would kind of have a problem with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you take your work home with you? No. No? No. When I leave here, I, I do not think about this place. I think that it's important to do to do that. And uh, what has this job changed for you, if anything, outside of work? Nothing really. No? No. I Like I said, I keep that good separation between work and home life. And... Uh, Occasionally it will bleed over, mm-hmm. but it's pretty rare that we get called back. Um, it hasn't really changed much outside of that for me. All right. Our last and final question for you, Steve, is what makes you smile when you come to work every day? What makes me smile? Looking at my match manager every morning. <laughs> <laughs> so you still, we, this is something we 
haven't talked about yet. Actually, this is a good place to bring it up. When we get hits in the office, our, our CODIS workstation is in the office. So when we get a hit, we have like a CODIS dance. Like we are so excited. We cheer each other on. We're like, yeah, you got a hit. Um, so do you still do that? I mean, do you have your own office by yourself? Are you still excited about all these hits coming in? I am. So it's that same feeling, maybe not as ramped up as when you buy a Powerball ticket, right? And then... <laughs> And you look at your Powerball after the drawing the next morning, you pull your ticket out and you see if you you won. You have that little, that moment of anticipation while you're, the numbers are, are coming up and you're pulling your ticket out of your wallet. So it's not as powerful as that, but it's the same. I have the same feeling every time I open up my match manager every morning. Because we have those big cases yeah. that we're still hoping to get a hit for. And every day more samples get uploaded to CODIS and every day... There's the potential that we could win the lottery and get a hit to one of those. So. You don't lose that feeling, though, with the amount of matches and the amount of samples that are being searched every day? No. No. That's awesome. It is like awesome. It. I like it. Good answer, Gresco. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, Steve. We appreciate you coming to chat with us. My pleasure. Thank you, ladies. We hope you guys enjoyed hearing from Steve Gresco. We are going to take a step away from his interview and um, once again kind of discuss the cases here. And the case that Steve mentioned during his interview with us, um, the case that was a success to the retroactive collection from offenders in our state, is referencing what's known or has been coined the Hammer Slayer cases. These cases were four hammer attacks in Colorado within a 12-day period. On January 4th, 1984, a couple was sleeping in their home and they were attacked by an unknown man who had beat them with a hammer. Uh, both of those individuals fortunately survived this attack. Then on January 9th, 1984, um, a woman was attacked in her garage by a man and again she was beaten and sexually assaulted. Um, she did survive this attack, however. The next afternoon, 50-year-old Patricia Smith was sexually assaulted and murdered in her condo. Her body was found later that evening by her daughter. On January 16, 1984, Bruce and Deborah Bennett and their 7-year-old daughter Melissa were murdered in their home. Their 3-year-old daughter Vanessa was attacked but survived the ordeal. When the couple didn't show up for work the next day, Bruce Bennett's mother uh, went into their home in search of them and found their bodies. It wasn't until July 2018, approximately 34 years later, a hit happened that led investigators to a man by the name of Alex Ewing as a suspect. Ewing had attacked a couple with an axe handle in Henderson, Nevada in August of 1984. He was arrested a few days later and convicted of multiple charges. He has been serving out a 110-year prison sentence ever since. It was due to retroactive collection laws that his DNA sample was collected and put into CODIS. Ewing has been extradited to Colorado where he will be put on trial. This case is still currently active. So you guys, we've covered a lot over the last three episodes about laws and specifically about our agency's work with state legislator. And for many of us, I mean, myself included, um, legislature was something that I learned about in high school. And to be honest, I didn't really think about it again. Did you, Darby? No. Yeah. I don't know that I learned that much in high school about it either. Okay. Um, and so I... Truly always felt like I was a good, upstanding citizen. I voted in each election. Um, I felt like I did my research and was fairly well versed on the topics that, you know, I was supposed to be voting on. Um, 
But it really wasn't until I started working here that I realized just how important my vote was for assembly members and senators in our state. Uh, really until working here, I didn't kind of see how it all fit together and how voting for those specific people really does impact our daily lives. And it really has a massive impact on forensics. Um, and if you'll kind of recall, we've talked about the arrestee laws. You know, Gresco mentioned that they had tried to get the arrestee laws passed three prior legislative sessions and it failed and never made it out. And so it really wasn't until the Denison case that it made it through and became a law. And then, you know, that interpretation of the collection laws for offenders took many years um, to get that new interpretation to allow for retroactive collection. And so we want you to know just how important your vote truly is and how important it is um, about who you vote into our state legislature. And it, it does really matter. This topic is so important to law enforcement and forensics because as new laws come into play, law enforcement has to enforce the new laws. And often crime labs are seriously impacted with having to meet these mandates. More often than not, they have to build the infrastructure to even comply with the new laws. Think back to the AB 97 bill and the laws surrounding sexual assault in our state. That was such a big undertaking for the crime lab to be able to comply with those laws. We wanted to give you guys a little bit of information about Nevada's state legislature. Um, since 1983, there have been 63 members, uh, 21 members in the Senate and 42 in the Assembly. Uh, they convene the first Monday of February after an election of members of the Senate and Assembly. and. Um, our most recent one was the 81st session that was held this year from February 1st to June 1st. And in this session, you guys, 564 bills were passed. Um, I thought that was just incredible that that much work was done in that um, legislative meeting. And uh, we won't kind of bore you or drag you through all the different bills that were went through, but you should know that... Um, your vote matters, and these bills cover topics, everything from, you know, business, uh, civil rights, criminal justice, education, election, employment, um, every kind of topic. And so I found a really good article that um, actually listed out the most recent bills. And so we're going to put that in the show notes for you guys if you're interested in looking into what those topics were and what the bills uh, specifically were. And with that, we want to thank you guys for your continued support on this project. It has been so much fun this season getting versed in all things podcast. And it's been a learning curve. <laughs> yes, it was a steep one for sure. <laughs> um, but we have welcomed it and we've had so much fun. We only have a few episodes left for this first season and we wanted to remind everyone about our giveaway. Yeah, so just to give you guys a reminder, um, be visiting those coffee shops that we have featured on the podcast this season. Snap a photo of your drink or your visit there, um, post it to Instagram and use the hashtag coffee with a criminalist. We will be doing a drawing to get you guys um, a lab tour uh, for you and a friend. You guys get to have lunch with me and Darby, get a little coffee with a criminalist and see what it's all about. So we have been checking those hashtags. There aren't a lot of entries. So if you've entered, you have a really good chance right now of getting um, that crime lab tour. So make sure you're visiting, posting to Instagram and uh, yeah. Yeah, and if you guys have any ideas about topics for next season, I know we've gotten some emails um, about a couple things. 
We are not ignoring people. We kind of get emails lost in our work emails. And a lot of times they get blocked. So if you guys have any ideas, please don't send them to us to our work emails. Please send them to coffeewiththecriminalist at gmail.com. And we will try to reach back out to you or see if we can get some topics that we can discuss on next season. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we're really sorry, you guys. So if you have emailed us, know that we have a very serious firewall here. (laughs) So it may not, it may have been blocked. It may not have gotten to us. um, Or unfortunately, it may have gotten lost in our in our work emails. So hopefully we'll hear from you at um, coffeewithacriminalist at gmail.com. Let us know what topics you guys want for next season, you guys. We're rounding out this first season. Um, We want to know what you want to hear about. We have some ideas, but this podcast is really for you all. So let us know. Bye, guys. Wash US one. Yes, one. Go ahead. I'm Sheriff Darren Balaam. Thank you for listening to another episode of Washoe County Sheriff's Office Coffee with a Criminalist. This podcast is one more way our office is striving to build trust and partnerships within the community that we serve. To learn more about our office, please visit us on the web at washoesheriff.com. If you'd like to further support this project, click subscribe and be sure to tune in for our next episode to learn even more about forensics. Until next time, folks. Washoe, this is S1. I'll be 1042. Have a good night. S1, copy. Have a good night.